someone once likened the Canadian banker to a riverboat gambler, right? They <laughs> they love gold. The country is a resource-based economy. It's gold, it's diamonds, it's high-risk, boom-bust assets, Versace. cannabis, right? I'm going to show you right now, David, that Canadian companies will lie to your face about how legal and they, and they what have, they're doing. And they have investment <laughs> bankers from tier one banks on their deck. No, it's super, so, super illegal. I mean, okay, come on. Welcome to the Orthogonal Podcast. Uh, we go with the show. We call it Boom Time. One of my favorite things to say when we invest and we hang out with incredible entrepreneurs and people uh, that are, you know, people that are a lot smarter than us, people that are changing the world, people that are disrupting uh, just different things that we're super excited about. Um, as usual, you know, full disclosure, um, in this situation, EI Ventures is a investor in Magmetis Ventures, which is Anthony's company, and EI Ventures is an investor in Avacana, which is all, uh, which, yes, so... Uh, in this situation, EI Ventures uh, is both of the investors in both of these companies. I had to think about that for a second. Sorry, guys. Um, and I want to introduce Anthony with Magmetis Ventures. Great for you to be here today. I'm sort of tongue-tied today. I was flowing, and then I got tongue-tied. But it's good to have you, Anthony. Glad to be on, David. I appreciate it. Awesome. Super excited. Uh, a D.C. native like myself, uh, Anthony and I are, were together in LA last week and something about DC it's uh there's a bond there. Uh RS is in Toronto right now. Um RS great having you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me David. Excited. Absolutely, absolutely. Um I would tell you and you know I was so excited. I got up at 2 a.m. this morning and I was just thinking to myself like if I were to look at like the hundred companies we are involved with between all of our different companies and subsidiaries, uh, I just realize the the two of you are are directly inside EI Ventures, and I think there's a specific reason for that. And I think once we go through this series, we'll understand kind of the trifecta of why we are all working together. Again, full disclosure, as the lawyers were all over me this morning, we are not soliciting any investments here. This is a inflow podcast. And, you know, obviously, whatever investments get done, you know, outside of this, we're not responsible, yada, yada, yada. So this is a two-part segment. We are going to speak about psychedelics, uh, which Anthony is going to lead and then, which is going to be 45 minutes, and then we're going to go into cannabis, which RS is going to lead. And obviously, between our family office, EI Ventures, uh, we are involved with cannabis, CBD, and psychedelics. So uh, this is a very special place in my heart. Um, with no further ado, let's let's get into it. Anthony, I'm going to let you, because... You know, you sent me a big sheet of a lot of topics. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, no, there's so many ways we can go with it. Again, echoing David's uh, opener, this is entirely for research purposes. Um, you know, when thinking about the industry, right, in terms of where we are, uh, you know, 
looking at it, taking a step back and thinking about, okay, why does this opportunity even exist in the first can, place? Can right? you give us a, can you give us a little uh, background on you and Magmetis? Yeah, no, that'd be okay. great. So, uh, you know, I got my, my, my background in, in venture capital, uh, was early investor in the cannabis space, vaporization space, a lot of stigmatized asset classes, right. Where, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, institutional backing from the seed stage where, you know, it was kind of like new entrepreneurship was coming in. You know, there was technology that, you know, the mainstream wasn't sure about, but there was true native demand, right? So cannabis, online gambling, um, you know, low harm vaporization and psychedelic medicine. Um, and then after that point, you know, I expanded into really narrowing my focus solely on this revolution that really is taking part uh, globally, right, around mental health and around, you know, the reemergence of plant-based medicines and really a new clinical care model, you know, they're super, super, super excited about, you know, big pharma uh, has really dropped the ball when it comes to mental health. And, you know, I, I, as a, as a, as an investor was looking for a great way to get exposure to this space, right? Um, it's a very complicated asset class because you have the biotech side and you also have, you know, the regulatory side, right? About like controlled substances and you, we as a, as a globe, right, are basically going to attempt to upend 100 years of terrible drug legislation and police brutality and persecution and flip it into a community care model, right, where your doctor isn't your dealer anymore and you're not taking three pills a day to numb yourself, right? You're doing targeted interventions with prep, set, and setting. You know, it's, it's a more holistic approach where, you know, you're, there's integrated breath work, there's community building, there's family affair support, uh, there's, there's social services, right? And so, you know, what we really discovered, you know, as an investor through this fund is that, you know, neuropsychiatry, mental health, most of the issues we face are, are bio, psycho, and social, right? And so, Magmetis is designed to be the best security, if you will, the best way for an investor who wants to take part in this space from the investment side uh, to participate and get exposure to a diverse set of molecules, right? So we're covering all the classic psychedelics, plus ones you've never even heard of. Uh, and then also really well diversified around therapeutic area, right? So thinking about depression, Parkinson's, ALS, PTSD, anorexia, binge eating, I mean, the list goes on and on. Can you give people sort of a background of maybe a few companies you've invested in within these spaces? Probably, you know, other people have heard of them. Yeah, sure. I mean, we're, we're very public facing. So, you know, we believe that the opportunity exists in the public market more than the private side. Uh, valuations have come down dramatically to extremely attractive levels on the, on the public side where they stayed relatively sticky and I think completely unsubstantiated on the private side. Right. And so we're really focused on late stage clinical assets, ones that are past. So, you know, the FDA process is phase one, phase two, phase three, then approval. We're focused on phase two and later, right? We're not going to take, we're not focused on taking a, a, a tremendous amount of risk in at, at the seed stage, right? We want to focus on where there's real inhuman data. So a good example, uh, a company that I love is Celos Therapeutics. Okay. You know, been tracking them for about three years. Uh, they have a, basically Johnson & Johnson originally came out with Spravato, which many people have heard of, right? That's the S-ketamine uh, isomer of ketamine. Ketamine has the R side and S side, and it's called racemic ketamine because it's a blend of the two, right? <clears throat> and so I was always, and talked to you know, a number of scientists around this. I was good friends with the head of uh, neuroscience at Stanford, Bambalenka. And you know, he was also very clear that 
you know, splitting the isomer doesn't make sense and that there's this whole patent play around trying to just get 40-year exclusivity <clears throat> on something and not necessarily focused on therapeutic benefit, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. And so when thinking about the company, they they were like, look, like, let's use the racemic. We'll take the shorter patent life, but we'll find a very specific use case for it. So right now, uh, roughly 1 million Americans uh, are admitted to the ER with a suicide attempt on an annual basis. Wow. It's estimated between one and three, <clears throat> which is, you know, those, those numbers are probably even a little bit low, right? And so it, that is a massive unmet need that costs hospitals on average anywhere from 15000 to $20,000 a day just to keep them in what amounts to medical jail, are right? You, are, are you pro-ketamine? I'm just wondering because... Ketamine, for me, I've never considered it a psychedelic. And I would have to say just because of the demographics of the show, which is a lot of people that are getting into investing, obviously we have some more, what I would say, experienced investors. But I really like to make sure that people understand things like speaking to them at this level where they can fully get it. You are, as I've always said, you're incredible. You know so much about this space. But is ketamine a psychedelic? So not in the traditional sense, not in the sense of like it being a tryptamine that has a similar mechanism of action to the classic psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, and DMT, right? Those are considered... So I, I, I look at it as, as, as a disassociative in, in my view. So I, I, I heard this umbrella term from a professor from UC Davis that I really like, and he uses the term psychoplastogens, and that includes ketamine in that definition. And they're simply molecules that increase plasticity and plasticity is the number one thing that we've correlated that helps heal the mind right from depression right the more fluid the mind can become the less dependent it is on default mode networks the more resilient the mind can be right and so from that perspective ketamine falls under my definition of psychoplastogens which is where i think this is the next generation of molecules really really it's what they're targeting right and so you know ketamine is also interesting in that I think it'll be the tip of the spear uh, alongside MDMA, which we'll talk about later, in terms of building out infrastructure and regulatory approval and getting payers to reimburse future psychedelic therapies, right? And so already you've seen in the last five years the proliferation of ketamine clinics. I believe the estimation was in like 2017, there were like 30 nationwide, and now there's close to 300, including places like Utah that, are, that have completely dry counties. They don't permit alcohol. But they allow ketamine clinics, right? I Which think, I think I is. Think there, I think there's a lot more than 300. I mean, I, I think they're popping up every, uh, just everywhere. I mean, RS, what's your thought on this? I mean, are, do, are you, do you know anything about ketamine or any of these products? I mean, we're generally aware and we're looking at uh, any type of sort of plant-derived uh, actives that we, we, we would consider next-generation pharmaceuticals. But no, we haven't. We've dived into some of the more plant-derived ones, and we've dived into, obviously, psilocybin, MDMA, but ketamine I'm not very familiar with, but I, I do see them popping up all over Canada. What, They're what all is, over the place what is, here. What is Avocana doing in the whole psychedelic space? I mean, what is your guys' thought on it? Well, we, we started off as a, as a biopharmaceutical company that was predominantly focused on cannabinoids, right? And the reason why we looked at cannabinoids was because of the, the efficacy that existed for thousands of years, and, you know, we wanted to take it, standardize it, and generate the evidence that we think is needed to get, you know, the medical community behind it, to get the payers behind it, you know, as Anthony just mentioned as well. And so you, so you know, you're, you're, a, you're a pioneer in cannabis in Canada. 
you're you're in LA, Anthony. You're considered a pioneer. I'm gonna, I don't know if I can throw this out there. You've been involved with MindMed, Compass, Atai. I know you've re I've read the white papers that you've put together. I'm going to throw something out there for, for both of you just because it's coming to my desk a lot. I try to let people know. I see probably 50 at a minimum deals a day. The one deal that I keep seeing a lot of in the last what I would say, it's funny. In a 21-day period, it seems like this space shifts. So now the taste is a lot of analogs that are being manufactured in Canada uh, we were on with a company yesterday that's producing a psilocybin analog. Obviously, Silly, our product, is a, you know, when I look at the patent, it's an, it's an analog. It's a combination of different products to give you this, like, nano super compound microdose. What is your guys' take on analogs and the idea in Canada that people are shipping them and telling us that, lawyers there are saying that it's totally legal. I mean, what's your thought on it, Anthony? And then we'll get your perspective, RS. Well, that's, that's a great question. And I just want to kind of finish that thought on yeah. ketamine. The one edge that it has <clears throat> over the other psychopathogens is that it's the world's fastest acting antidepressant, meaning that the onset is faster than any of the others. The duration is shorter, right, which is why it's very good in acute settings. So in the ER, having someone who is acutely suicidal administering intranasal ketamine to it, all you're doing is trying to attenuate the suicidal symptoms so you can get them out of the hospital faster, right? But in terms of long-term treatment, I am more of an advocate of then flipping them to one of the more classic psychedelics with longer treatment times, right, and more integrated therapy. But as an acute intervention, I think ketamine has, intranasal specifically, has a lot of legs. Well, what's, inter what's interesting about ketamine, and I do want to get on the analog topic, is that what I find, you know, I had to tell somebody today, I get a few thousand messages in my inbox a day. And, I'll, and I look at, you know, I can't read them all, but a lot of what I get from people today about ketamine is abusing ketamine. Like I had one female in particular that is telling me that, you know, she was in a, in a one day period, she was going to three different clinics to get ketamine treatment. And again, you know, a lot of people know I come from the D.C. rave scene. Uh, you know, we used ketamine was a normal recreational thing that we used to do as high schoolers and in my early 20s. Um, are are we in a situation where this has become less about treatment and more about recreational? And how do we is this just going to be one of those things where people are going to abuse these products like everything else? Well, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll tie it into the question about analogs too. Yeah. So the question is, okay, the abuse potential of ketamine or any psychedelic, right? Here's the thing is that there's a great book um, by, uh, let's see, it's Dr. Carl Hart. I have it over here. Uh, it's called Drug, Drug, Drug Use for Grownups, right? I'm sure you've read it. Yeah, yeah, Where, yeah totally. He's yeah, great. he makes the case that drug abuse is a symptom of socioeconomic issues and mental health issues and not the root cause necessarily, right? Well, we, well, and we, so, talked, we talked about being in D.C. I mean, crack was an epidemic. Right, exactly. And some would say that, you know, the police helped that along, right? So, and it was, and it was a symptom, right? Yeah. And it was a symptom of what was going on during the time, extreme poverty, violence, 
hunger, lack of lack, food deserts, you name it, right? Yeah. So drug abuse and drug trafficking tends to sit on top of those but it's easier for a society to blame the individual, right, for being a drug addict versus blaming themselves for failing our own communities, right? And so that's the one thing. The other thing is, is that ketamine, one of the reasons that it has like, people tend to try to abuse it who start in the clinic is that it's for many payers, they aren't covering it. So folks are like paying $500, $800 for an administration with an IV. Then it get, becomes cost prohibitive, but they like the, the feeling. They like what's what's doing for them. So they'll go and buy it on the street for a tenth of the price. Right. Well, I mean, and then that, that, that and becomes mean, at a this habit. point. They'll just ship it to your house. I mean, right. Yeah. Tele- telemedicine, even better. One interview, a few bucks. So like one of the things I'm advocating in this space is a really like a lot of redundancies around safety and abuse prevention. So I am really a strict uh, fan of just uh, on-site administration, at least for this first yeah. rollout. Right. Um, where I don't want people taking ketamine or MDMA home with them. I, I think there's a lot of challenges around the telehealth model, but there really hasn't been any crazy, you know, uh, instances of, you know, overdosing or hospital, you know, administration through my Mind Blooms program, for example, which has been interesting. Right. Which is like folks thought that there would be rampant sort of like uh, negative side effects, but there really hasn't been anything too traumatic. But the really what we're trying to say is the key point is, is that you know, these drugs are powerful, right? And anything that's powerful in the wrong hands has a high tendency for abuse. I mean, take TikTok, for example. I have friends that are doctors, surgeons, right? They won't touch it because they said that they would just look at sex all day long. It would be a funnel for sex for them. TikTok can be used for humor, nutrition, education, what have you. But if you're a person where the dopamine hit is too high for you, then you're, you're going to abuse that piece of technology, right? So I think we're thinking smart about this. You know, we want to be able to understand that, you know, the onus is on a new medical system that controls for those variables. But, you know, and then thinking about analogs, analogs are interesting, right? Because Canada has this gray market where it doesn't govern a lot of analogs for substances that it has under the Control Substances Act. And, you know, we have a hawkish DEA that's constantly adding or trying to add new molecules to the list of, of, of illegal ones, Right. But we've seen in the first time in DA's history in the last two years that they failed through lawsuits to add new tryptamine analogs, specifically for DMT. I don't know if you saw that on Capitol Hill. That is huge. The idea that public opinion could push the DEA to back down from listing a new set of molecules shows where our society is going, that people want access. Can you, I mean, so let me just give you what this company said to me. They're a brand new company they're almost profitable. They're doing a million dollars in revenue shipping analog, shipping one specific analog of psilocybin. And they have CMOs in Canada that are manufacturing it. So for me, this is a two-part question, and we'll, we'll, we'll let RS speak now. What is your take on it, RS? About, so I, it's a two-part question for me. You got the analogs that are now shipping everywhere, and I probably have 20 companies on my desk from Toronto to Vancouver that are telling me big law firms, and I'm not going to say their names, are saying it's totally legal. And then this idea of these narcotic licenses, which obviously RS and I have been seeing companies, that these new promo companies that are shopping these narcotic licenses. What's your thought, RS? I mean, why is Canada... I love Canada. I love the... I love how the market, you know, certain things about the market, but, but yeah, how are they just letting people ship this stuff to people? 
I think it's just the pace that the health Canada is getting to, first of all, understand what these guys are up to second to change legislation and protect against it. I mean, the similar model for me and then for to bring this back to cannabis was like Delta eight or these, some of these rare can, synthetic cannabinoids that are being chemically produced in the United States. The DEA, I, I hate Delta eight. It's, it's dangerous. You know, I, I'm, we, we would not carry any of those cannabinoids in any of our formulations. We don't work with any channels that do. Some of those cannabinoids are, you know, they're synthesized, but people are thinking because it's derived from hemp CBD that it's the same legislation. So, Should people be investing in these analog companies? Are they safe? In my opinion, I, like I'm not a, I'm not an expert when it comes to the psychedelic analogs, but what I can tell you is that what again what attracts me to psychedelics is the plant derived ones are the are the historic benefits that we know and the historic safe toxicity. And with an analog, you don't necessarily have the same chemical profiles, right? So you don't have necessarily the same structure. So you don't necessarily have the same efficacy or for sure the same safety. So I think that's concern one. And concern two is it's, it seems like it's a loophole. It looks sounds like it's something that the Canadian investment bankers are probably hijacking as they have with cannabis in the past. And they're just trying to make some quick money. I don't, about, I don't about, see it as a long-term nar- model. How about the narcotics license? What is this? I mean, everybody's raising for a narcotic. I mean, it's so funny. Literally, Anthony, I get these deals. It's like it's like 21-day dopamine investment bankers. So what, what's the narcotics license all about? Yeah, no, so I think that when you're talking about Canada versus the U.S., you have to talk about culture, and specifically finance culture. Yeah. Someone once likened the Canadian banker to a riverboat gambler, right? <laughs> they... <laughs> They love they love gold. The country is a resource based economy. It's gold. It's diamonds. It's high risk boom bust assets. Versace. Cannabis, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's the culture they have. They push legislation quickly. They're very strong about the right to try. You know, maybe maybe it's just too many hockey players out there. I don't know what it is. Oh my god, you're you're killing you're killing me. <laughs> that's the culture, right? Where the you know America's the opposite. You know, we we are. The, the the descendants of puritanical you know uh, Christian overlords that are that tax everything and are afraid of, of so ultra safety consciousness. How, how so, you, so somebody brings you a deal, Anthony, and says invest in this narcotics license or invest in the analog. So this show, just to let you know, I've been thinking about this podcast for a decade, and it's like, how do you protect people that want to invest in these spaces and? There's crowdfunding channels. There's, I mean, ads all over Facebook, Instagram, invest in my company, invest, uh, family offices. I mean, I, I probably have within Telegram, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, I probably have 50 channels of investments coming at me. Yeah. Like, and, and what you're talking about specifically is what we saw in cannabis, right? Which is like, you know, you have the legal market that's being formed. And the black market is pushing ground for market share within that legal market, right? Because we're at this hinge inflection point where it's unclear, there's a battleground and it's unclear who's on what side yet, right? But, you know, the one thing that we know that will come to bear is that the regulators, once, you know, there is a, uh, there is a uh, approved therapy, right, by the FDA, by Canada, by Health Canada, um, they will clamp down on any of these 
black market operators dealing out of the back of pharmacies because it's dangerous, it's illegal, and more importantly, it bumps up against someone else's IP, someone who went through the, the right channels to get an approved medicine, right? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out there, and I, I, I'm sure my lawyers are going to be so upset, but that's okay. This is, this is what I do. I want to be always transparent. So yesterday, we announced the termination of our merger with EI Ventures and Mycotopia. Uh, we have mad, you know, a lot of respect for the crew behind Mycotopia. We decided that NASDAQ, SEC, U.S. filing was not our thing. We determined that Canada is a better home for us. I, I, I would have to say it's like how, how do, you know, we're going to Canada because th the laws there are going to work better for us in our, you know, our main, everybody, I always look at things and say one desire. My desire is to give low-cost, high-quality access to premium psychedelic products. And love the NASDAQ, love the SEC, but we couldn't do that in the U.S. So I guess it's a two-part of, and again, I don't want to throw EI Ventures into this whole thing, but love Canada, but... How do we get rid of these bad actors? Great question. Yeah, I, I think that, well, one, I mean, I think, the, first of all, for Magmetis, right? Like, I see us raising capital in Canada, joining the capital exchange in Canada, and then migrating over to the U.S. after about three years, right? And is that, and is that so, through, like, an ADR, like the cannabis companies do? I mean... Yeah, there's there's a there's a whole slew of ways to uplist, right? For a very cost effective way, totally. you know, we'll explore the best option at the time. But really, in in general, in terms of what you're saying, in terms of like legislation, the capital markets, and general public is interest in investability. Can't, can't, Canadians are just going to be or early early adopters in this space, right? So it's good to be a part of that wave and be one of the good actors, plant a flag, and then when the U.S. is ready to catch up because it has more. Uh, hurdles to go through from a, from a legislative perspective, then you cross over, and then you can be truly dominant in North America as as a as a thought leader, giving good act, giving access to good medicines that have been tested. Right? I mean, that's the really that's the big issue here. Right? Is that Canadians are selling Canadians drugs that have that are made in a chemical lab with with no with no checks and balances. Right? And that's and that's just dangerous. Right? It, it's not good for the industry. Yeah, I you know, I would I would say the reason I brought both of you onto the show and you know, really in perfect timing and perfect orthogonal timing of the EI termination is really looking at this space like you know, we heard yesterday what happened to Field Trip Ventures. They are now, you know, selling assets, moving out of the ketamine space, you know, Somebody told me they may be shutting down, and I don't want to get into super specifics, but it's like these companies came in and multi-billion dollar valuations, and we're going to control and crush. You know, it's, I think, and again, not giving anybody advice, if you want to invest in this space, number one, it's gambling in its own essence, and don't invest money you don't have, but take it slow, Invest cool. in, I always tell people, make sure you have empathy and connection with the founder. Make sure that it, it feels good. So I'm, I'm going to throw this out there because a lot of people, I get this question at least a few hundred times a day. How do we determine 
how we invested companies. And again, uh, in Avacana, I believe we have almost 2 million US, 2.1 million US. I know we've written a smaller check into Magmetis. We're gonna write a bigger check into Anthony's hedge fund. Um, I'm gonna tell you why I invested in both of you. And I think that in both cases, I made a decision in 30 seconds or less. And because I just knew there was a connection to understand that there's a, you guys, I always tell people for me, it's 50% making money because you got to make money. And the other 50% is, as Anthony wrote to me, it's purpose, it's intention. It's how do you guys, and I'm going to turn this over to you, Anthony, first is like, how do you determine who you're going to invest in? That's a great question. So, uh, actually, you know, he kind of remind me of David. It's Charlie Munger, right? The prolific investor. Oh, so not, and I and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. One specific way that you guys. One thing you have in common. So, one of my favorite uh, papers by him is is his. 100 mental models. Yeah. It's a way to train your brain to have a good 30-second mind. And you have a very good 30-second mind. You're able to see something in a snapshot and make a decision. And I think a big piece of that is one of his mental models is understanding this, the sphere of confidence, right? Where your expertise in, in a specific field ends and where someone else's begins, right? So Donald Trump, for example, doesn't have one, right? He constantly finds himself in bad situations because he tries to be a lawyer. He tries to be a doctor. He tries to be a financier. He, he's, a, he's an actor, right? And he should not be doing anything else but that. Right. And he'd be fine with that. No and so politic, no politics. Okay. No, no politics, but no he's, religion, he's just a good example. No, religion, <laughs> no sexual connotation. So. I mean, that's, that's the soul of a human though. I don't know what to do about that, but um, yeah. And so when it comes to investing, right, there are areas where I can get smart on and read a balance sheet, right? Like a cannabis company. I can look at a yeah. cannabis company and understand it's a commodity that needs to be sold. Here's the balance sheet. I can get oriented. With things that are like esoteric and also require an incredible amount of niche expertise, like biotech, you know, you want to trust a manager for that, right? You want to have someone who has the relationship with the scientists, who understands the regulation, who just, you want to port over all of that mental work to them. And what you're really underwriting is the manager themselves, right? So I would encourage folks when thinking about psychedelics is think about like a fund of funds, right? You have your money and you want to have you want to invest in a manager that's done all the work break, in this break space. It down, break it down like we're five years old. I got, I got five grand, and I want to put it in the psychedelic space. What do I do? I mean, I, I can't advocate for, you know, no, investing just, through I, my I'm vehicle. Just, but saying, is, in, in broad strokes, I would seek out uh, funds with talented managers that are deploying assets into the space. That's the best way to do it, right? I love that. Uh, yeah. And diligence the hell out of those managers, right? Well, I mean, They're we we get a lot of people. I get two types of, I get a couple types of investors. I get the investor that's going to put ten to 25000 in. I get the investor that's more like a fifty dollars to $100,000 to $200,000 check writer. And then you have the million, $5 million, $10 million check writer. And, and, and shockingly enough, they are all very similar. And again, whether it's a doctor, lawyer, somebody that's a great entrepreneur at what they do, they, so I'm going to ask this of you in terms of, I mean, you're incredible at what you do. What's like one main checkbox? Like 
I have a checkbox, and I'm going to tell you it's my, I call it my second brain, my gut. And either it's a fuck yes or it's a fuck no. And when I got on the phone with you, within literally 30 seconds, it was a fuck yes. When I met our ass, within 30 seconds, it was a, a fuck yes. And and with you, it was like, I knew your background. We're both from D.C. There were, there were relational databases. With our ass, it was, we're both Persian. He has a publicly traded company. This I hope I don't get in trouble by saying this, but it's like, both Persian, we both have culture common. He had gone through the journey of the bankers, had a company on the TSX Senior, took the pharma approach with cannabis. I'm going to ask you both this question, starting with you, Anthony. What is that one checkbox that you, you know, you ha- every time you, this is the same checkbox? Yeah. And do you mean psychedelic specifically or just in, investing? In general, in general? investing. Okay. Like, what's your checkbox? My <laughs> uh, my check one. I always tell people uh, that when you invest, let's say, think about investments over the course of one year, yeah. right? And think about if you could only make three investments that year, what would they be, right? And I think slowing down and being very, very, very conservative and cautious with your hard-earned money, right? And being like, okay. In my insulin, I can only make three, right? So let me just be patient. Let me be patient. My one one thing is you got to fall in love with it, right? It's got to, you got to fall in love with the person, the company, you got to believe in it. You got to be a consumer of the product, right? That's the number one thing, right? Is, is, is just being obsessed with it, being a fan of it, being in love with it. And if you, if you can feel it in your bones, then pursue it. Otherwise, stay away. Okay. So that's your, your one thing. So I would say to you, and then we'll go to our asses. Mine is, uh, somebody I was studying spirituality with, or I was learning about yoga, not yoga as in downward dog, but, you, you know, living a yogic lifestyle said, as we get older, it's about people that I want to spend time with. And I would say, like, our dinner last week, our ass cooking kebabs on my deck in Hawaii. <laughs> that, for me, is like, it, for me, the checkbox is, somebody that I want to, as we say in Hawaii, talk story with. And, and I forgot to say, we are in beautiful Honolulu. We're in Hawaii. This podcast is about, you know, Hawaii and the energy that it's evoked. You were married in Hawaii, Anthony. I hope I, I can say that. Okay. Uh, uh, RS has spent time with us here. RS, what's your checkbox when you do a deal with somebody? You're, you've dealt with these crazy bankers. You're on the TSX senior you're you're constantly raising money. You got to deal with the MBA, I believe. Uh, yeah, through our partnerships. So. Yeah. How do you how do you determine who you deal do a deal with? I think you have like an MBA player that you have a deal with as well. Yeah, we have a partnership with Al Harrington. With uh, we're working with some of the other guys like Why Alan Harrington. What, what was the checkbox? Why Al uh, Harrington? In, in integrity, and I think I think you, I know you're a big fan of this founders, right? Like when you're talking about these small micro cap, especially biotech or you know plant based, medicine based focused companies, it's about the founder. It's about the you know, the love, the little drive that it takes to get this done, you know, and I'll give you an, I'll give you a, a short example something that's very interesting. I, one time met a, a very senior and I won't name him, a very senior biotech analyst in the United States. And he said something very smart to me he goes biotech's the only industry where I don't look at a CEO that has a positive track record as someone who's going to succeed again. 
And I was like, why do you say that? He goes, look, if you tell me you've ran banks for 40 years and now you're the CEO of a new bank, I'll be like, you're going to do a good job. But to get a biotech story to succeed, you have to get all the stars to align. You have to have a team that believes in you. You have to be able to grind. You have to be able to raise money. You need to have the right technology at the right time. So the probability of all of those stars aligning again and for the CEO to be hungry to do that twice is very low. So you go, and that's a very interesting thought, right? Because when you're thinking about a micro cap company, it is up to the CEO. It is up to the founder. So if you, if I look you up and as a CEO, for example, you were a CEO of a cannabis company six months ago. Now you're the CEO of a crypto company. And next week you're pitching my friend David as a CEO of a, of a, of a psychedelic company. You're, you're probably not the guy. You're probably jumping around because you have some friends that are bankers that are going to fund it and pump it and dump it. And that's where, you know, you, you look for things like that, right? Is that spray and pray? I mean, that's basically funny. right. <laughs> so, I mean, on the other hand, I look for that in investors, right? So we've had, we went public at, you know, we were public on the senior exchange of the TSX at $8 a share. And we had no revenue. We had no patents filed at the time. We were the Johnson and Johnson incubator sort of wow. cannabis company. And I, I, I dragged the Kool-Aid. I thought we, we, you know, we, we should be worth that amount because I looked at the peers in the industry that had no substance and they were trading higher. But the reality is the type of guys that were also giving us checks then were also waving, you know, riding the wave, right? It was a bit of a frenzy. And when the sector sort of meltdown happened, access to capital sort of went away, the, we, get, we had opportunities to start having very different kinds of conversations. And for us, it's also important the relationships we build with the investors, because at this stage, when cannabis as an industry looks bad, we need sophisticated people that understand we're really not a cannabis company. We're, we're a next generation pharmaceutical company that is looking at cannabinoids as an active. And it's not going to be your typical hedge fund investor. It's not going to be your typical, you know, the capital market guys that are going to come and write checks. It's a different sophisticated level of discussion and relationships. So we I'm looking at it from both ways. Check. And that's why, but that was a mutual thing. Like we, we, we enjoyed hanging out with you guys. And I was shocked. You remember for what, and, and Anthony, seriously, 30 seconds, met, met, met David 30 seconds in. He's like, I want to invest. I was like, man, can I, let me go through my presentation. <laughs> you know? I'm on slide two. You just feel it sometimes. And I mean, I'm maybe I'm getting myself in trouble and, you know, I can tell you that my other checkbox is, would I put my own money behind it? And again, I really have an issue with people that create all these different companies. I, I met a guy yesterday that's a founder in like 10 different companies, and a couple of the companies are going under, but he's building a house in Malibu and, you know, the typical story. And I'm And for me... I am, I feel so responsible for this company that like I, no matter what happens, I'm going to use all of my own money to make sure that we execute at the highest level. And I feel that integrity for, for both of you guys. So I just lost my train of thought, but my, my next question was for Anthony. Anthony, why don't you, you sent me a long list of topics. What, where, where do you want to go next? Um, I mean, I, I kind of want to piggyback off, off what you were saying with Aras around, like, you know, he just said that he's a next generation uh, biotech company, right? And I think that's something that the three of us were mission aligned on that, that one specific fact, right? Is that 
pharma has failed us, right? In the sense, like in 2008, I believe, Goldman Sachs came out with a report that was leaked by an analyst that said the top of the internal memo was, our cure is profitable. And it was a detailed analysis as to why they are not and how pharma should be more treatment focused. Can you repeat that? What was it? So, yeah, it was a memo leaked by a banker from Goldman Sachs uh, to the media. And it's the, the tagline was, are cures profitable? Oh, my God. Is making a cure a profitable <laughs> business, right? Because it's not repeatable. The lifetime value of the customer is short, right? If you're curing people. Oncology, right, where you can drip people for years, right? Profitable. Vivance, where they have a lifetime customer. Oh profitable. Insane. If I heal your depression and, and, and put you in remission after six doses, I'm not making as much, right? And so, you know, they're not stupid. Like, they've seen these molecules. They know how powerful they are. They know they work. But they, it doesn't fit their business model, right? I, I have, mean, if I, I, have to be, I have to be very careful here, but I'm going to – you can tell me how far I can go. A lot of billionaires are so-called billionaires in the psychedelic business. It's almost like a new Amex black card. They're hiring IR firms. They're spending big money right now on promoting stocks while they're cheap, paying these CEOs We'll use one an example that we can. I'll talk about Tilray, and not a psychedelic company, but has had similar to the psychedelic space in the time when they raise money. CEOs making thirty million dollars a year. I mean, even worse. You can talk about MedMen, right? MedMen self dealing, buying land, leasing it back to themselves. I mean, you got to look out for you know. As you said, like intellectual honesty, right, which is what uh, Ross was saying, and then also, you know, being able to audit for malfeasance, right, being able to be able to dive into a financial statement and be like, why these numbers don't look right, right? Like, explain these things to me. But, but how do you, you know? How do you, how do you get rid of the conflict of interest? I mean, another question I get all the time, and again, I know you know where I'm going with this, but read something yesterday regarding like the capital markets and taking companies public. We just went through 12 months of a period where not a lot of companies went public. The market was consolidating. Um, I think the TSX did one deal. I know the SEC clamped down and the NASDAQ and NYSE clamped down because there was an issue with a bunch of companies out of Asia that went, like, how does anybody know when to invest when these bankers are piping these deals. People are getting out on the first day. What what needs to happen? Yeah, no, fundamentally, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if I if I may, like, I think I think from an investment perspective, if you're looking at anything that is next generation pharma, and and, and I, Anthony, I completely agree with you. I think we're all aligned on that. And I was presenting something in, in Europe a couple of months ago, and they they wanted me to present the emergence of plant based medicine. So they didn't want me to talk about cannabis specifically to talk about emergence of plant-based medicine. And I'm going to give you guys two facts that I think is quite interesting. Uh, there's 53,000 known medicinal plants. Wow. Really? There is, And since I have the, I have the numbers here cause I was, it was a really interesting presentation, but since 1950, the FDA has only approved 1200 drugs. Just to let you know, in Hawaii, there's about 2000 plants that have, uh, medicinal medic value medicinal value here that are like what we call super compounds 
It's about so, patents. Man, it's all about patents, you know? So, and, and I think that's one of the limitations. And I think one of the limitations that people haven't done the research is 1,200 drugs have been approved. Why? Because a process from phase one, phase two, phase three takes a long time. One argument is as we go towards standardizing plant-based medicine and using accurate dosing, you can avoid some of the safety toxicity studies, but also perhaps we can leverage better observational real-world evidence but, data but there, but, so we but, can get but, things faster, right? But but you're talking about phase one, phase two. Canada has just, I, I don't even get that anymore because now, you know, People are selling mushrooms out of a dispensary. People are, selling- but those are illegal, right? I mean, like, no, so from not, a bit, not, not necessarily. I mean, it was it was illegal in in Canada to sell cannabis, but nobody shut anybody down. I mean, I can tell you right now in New York City, every bodega we went to had chocolate bars, and yes, the ones that the ones that were shut down were a brand that had. Uh, MDMA in them, but the 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 bodegas that and again this is completely illegal at a federal level, but they did not shut down the bodegas that were selling you know chocolate bars of magic mushrooms. And I know in Canada because you know we're working on a number of projects, but there are dispensaries selling psilocybin. But but I so, think I think from a business or investment case, like I would say that's a hard no, right? Like, would well, you invest well, got, in got, a gray I area? 20, I got twenty deals on my desk right now for analogs of psilocybin. Yeah, I, I would I would say away from anything. Like as a bit from a, from a business side, I would say from an investment side, anything that's an analog that doesn't have safety toxicity, any loophole, whether it's delta eight or psychedelic analog, any gray area so, so dispensary gonna, so and gonna, stuff. So is, I'm going to throw this out there because I get it all the time. And it's such a sad and to get serious. Um, hey, David, love your passion. You know, uh, relate with your children and what they've gone through. My daughter, uh, you know, is is using fentanyl at 16 years old. How do I get? I mean, this is a typical. The, the other email that I get is, "Thank, I'm so thankful for what you're doing. My child has overdosed on fentanyl." The other one I get, and it's it's like I fall to tears every time, and I, I don't, you know, I'm not a crier, but it's like, holy shit, you know, losing your child. My other one is my my kids are actively using fentanyl in high school. What do I do? I need to get access to these products. So I'm going to ask you guys on, because I get this every day. This is another one, a few hundred emails a day is, when am I going to be able to go get, psilocybin for myself or for a family member so I can get them off this, you know, gosh darn fentanyl that's killing everybody. What What's your take on that, uh, Anthony? Uh, I want to emphasize that the decriminalization and legalization movement is completely different than what's going on in the FDA process. They're two different markets, two different business models, and they don't overlap at all, Right. What we're talking about in terms of right to try, especially in extenuating circumstances where someone's life is at risk. I, I want right? to know when I can I want to know when I can go and and even if it's and again, we're talking hypothetically, we're not endorsing any of this, but I want to go get psilocybin and what I do with it is my business. When can I legally, as an 18 or older, 21 and older, go get that? I want to know on the U.S. side, what does that look like to you? And then what does it look like in Canada or us? 
I mean, on the U.S. side, you're not going to have the dispensary model for psychedelics in the same way you have for cannabis. You and don't, I think you the, don't think so. No, I, I, I don't. Oh. I don't think in the near in the near term. In the near term, and here and here's why. Oregon, Oregon. So that's that's not a dispensary model, though. That is a, that is a therapeutic model with a trip sitter and a, certifi- a certification process, right? With with dose limitations, you can't just grab a bag of mushrooms so when, and go home. So when so my my family member who is having a drug addiction, let's just say over eighteen years old, when can they go to Oregon to do this? What's the soonest this can happen? Well, Oregon passed the bill earlier this year. There are there's been a number of snags around through the rollout, which is to be expected. Uh, but their infrastructure should be set up probably by late 2024, I think. Well, okay. they'll start. Well, so, yeah. So by so pretty late soon. 2024, early 2025, we can send we can, I can go to Oregon and have a trip sit psychedelic experience. So you're yeah. telling me right now, and I again. Emails flooding my inbox is that people take their children and family members to places like Costa Rica, Portugal, Amsterdam, uh, Jamaica to have these experiences. So right now in the U.S., that's going to be the soonest timeline is what yeah, you so maybe It's adult use only, right? Yeah. So I, you wouldn't be able to I, administer to adolescents yet. And then, you know, Colorado is going to be soon after that. Yeah, uh, you know, Kevin California Matthews. is the big gorilla in the room, right? That we don't know when, but it's inevitable. How about, how about Hawaii and other places talking about rescheduling? Yeah, so Hawaii, Hawaii is a little bit more conservative than I you would think, right? Very From a, a rollout Very standpoint, conservative. They, I saw that that they greenlighter a research division, a bill, right, to allow for research into it. But they're going to be very careful. And here's the thing. I, I know there's a huge unmet need around this, but I think being careful is what is going to allow this industry to survive, right? And in the sense of like when people um, are allowed to trip sit and learn how to administer from a professional and then they can go and seek out the molecule on their own through a decriminalized pathway, having already learned, right, set and setting and dose maintenance and, and everything, food and everything else that goes into it. That's the way I think it needs to work, right? There needs to be an education, Around it, how to, to me. What, where? How about Canada? What? When can I? That's a hard one. I mean, I I, I think in Canada it's going to be years, uh, and I think but it's you, going to be mid. You guys have dispensaries open that sell psilocybin. But but you were, we're talking about legal versus illegal, right? If we're talking about legal, uh, I think it's going to be similar. What, similar model. Let's do this because we're shifting. We've now hit the fifty-minute mark. I don't. I think Anthony's. A thing went out for a second. We're we're now moving to cannabis. Aloha, guys.